0: Tim Haggerty, the El Paso Chihuahuas broadcaster, and you're listening to Friars on the Farm. How you like me now? How you like me now?
1: How you like me now? How you like me now? Welcome to Friars on the Farm podcast. I'm Donovan, and with me is Roy. Happy Manny Machado Day, Part Two, Man Day. I, I, I love how Ben and Woods uh, called it Man Day. It, it is Man Day Monday. Um, with. Episode number one eighty nine being recorded right now. We have—is this truly what is going on in this Padre universe that we've followed for our whole life to enter this? I don't know utopian, um, free willing, um, easy cash flow moving. I'm just—I I can't believe what's going on.
2: I, I really can't. I, I can't wrap my brains around it either. But I don't want it to end anytime soon. And the way that Peter Seidler talks about it, it sounds like he has no intentions on this. It's not like he's just going all in and trying to, you know, go for, go for broke right now. They're talking about this being a a successful long term
1: kind of strategy. Yeah, is it sustainable? He said yes. Um, is there risk? There's risk not doing anything, and that's what we've had for our whole love baseball life. Pretty right, much and that's '98 and '84. Yeah, that's how like what
2: 25, 28 other major league baseball franchises operate. That yeah. they're always trying to watch the bottom line and and balance their annual sheets. And but some of these owners seem to understand that when you invest in the team, you invest in your facilities, you invest in your brand, then your valuation of your of your your asset grows. Yeah. And by the time it's finally com- t- comes time to sell the team, it's worth exponentially more. So you can't just look at those annual
1: profit loss sheets. There's other stuff that you factor into it. Absolutely. Well, and, and so, so now with the pitch clock here off the rails, now with the pitch clock, I'm kind of worried about the lack of concession sales uh, that actually add to that bottom line to pay for the players. Um, and so I'm kind of bummed about the pitch clock simply because we need to make more like the Padres, the PECO needs to make more money. We need more time in the ballpark to spend more money, to pay for these guys, to keep it sustainable. But I, uh, But that's just the way I worry. That's just the way I worry. Well,
2: our old friend H.J. Preller (laughs) pointed something out to me that the, uh, the revenue stream that Peter Seidler might be looking at is somewhere out there by the tailgate lot. They own that okay. tailgate lot property and they are talking yes. about developing it. And so you talk about putting up a couple of big condos and a bunch of commercial space, a bunch of, you know, there's massive profits to be had right, right there. And this is stuff that's that the Padres control. So yeah. there's revenue streams that are outside of, you know, how many bags of Cracker Jacks can can Donovan buy in a
1: in, a, in a 80 game package. <laughs> Oh, my God. Well, yeah, the, the revenue stream there is huge. And the whole point of having, um, you know, John Moore's when he was a part of the ownership that had Petco Park built was like all those buildings around Petco were all JMI Realty with yes. all his land. And so he made a tidy sum doing that. But that revenue that you're talking about with um, with the building that's right next door to it and then the tailgate park on top of, um, you know, what's a small parking lot called the Lexus? Kind of the the, the, Lexus the Lexus lot? Yeah. Like that Lexus lot's gonna turn into a high rise with game time parking um and retail and just there is a money stream there and there's revenue there that will pay for the team. You know what phrase I haven't
2: heard in a while is cash call. Remember how Ron Fowler right. would talk about how every once in a while they had to go to the owners and make a cash call and oh, say we need to <laughs> scrape together our pennies to see if we can sign another left handed reliever. There's none of that. It's just, oh, hey, that guy's out there. I want him. Let's go get him. Yeah. Manny Machado wants to stay in San Diego. Well, let's make it worth him for him to stay. So 11 years, $350 million. And Manny Machado now has that statue contract. If he yeah. if he keeps playing the way he's been playing and he does the things that we think he can do, then there will be a Manny Machado statue
1: somewhere out there in Gallagher Square. Absolutely. And I, I just I always do those when you get done. I mean, always, I, like, you know, Seidler said, Peter Steiler said, he's my top priority, which gave me no doubt. But, you know, on social media and the whole opting out and then the doubting, just you don't know until it happens. There's that anxiety. I mean, Liddy, you know, my wife is like, oh, she was angry at Manny for opting out. I'm like, look, if you can get a better paying job, if you can get more money by just not opting out, why would you not do that? Oh, no, he he go somewhere else, you know. like he's not going anywhere else yeah hey we we had that suspicion but i'd i'd kind of
2: talked myself into coming to peace with all the possible outcomes i figured either he plays through the year like it's a contract year and goes off into free agency to go make his money in which case we got to see five years of a perennial mvp candidate at the prime of his years or He gets hurt for some reason, then winds up staying and and playing out the remainder of his contract or what just happened. The extension happens and it's probably a little uncomfortable on the money side long-term, but I mean the core of this team, you've got Tatis Bogarts Machado. Now you've got Darvish for another handful of years. You've got Musgrove for a few more years. I mean, this core, I I, we've never seen anything like this,
1: obviously. Absolutely. Well, and for me, what what I had uh, what I had deemed by other people is like it'll get done, sure it'll get done, but it'll be four hundred million, it'll be four twenty five, it'll be some of this crazy money, and with the annual average value with the four forty five million dollar signing bonus, with the annual average value of thirty one point eight million, uh huh, that's a steal for the next six years. We're gonna get MVP style uh performance from this guy from a perennial position from from a cornerstone position at third base. Um, for, I believe, under market value. Now that's debatable. So Dan Zaborski at Fangraphs
2: and Jay Jaffe, these guys, they make their living taking a look, you know, trying to model how players age and what's the value of a win against replacement and all of this stuff. Um, and so Dan Zaborski's model shows Machado having that aging curve that most guys have he's 31 now so typically guys are already kind of just on the edge of starting to decline at age 31 so you according to his model you'll see another couple years of really good performance and then a little less and a little less and by the time we get to the end of this he's going to be in nelson cruz territory but i the where i struggle with that is that nelson cruz has been First base, outfield, but really a DH his whole career. He's yeah. never been the athletic, the athletic kind of a guy. Um, so the Tatis he, or Machado is going to fall off,
1: but yeah. I don't think he's going to fall off to be a uh, you know concrete shoes kind of guy, right? And then you got to factor in Alexander Bogars. So are they going to platoon at first base? Is one going to be healthy enough to just hit, or is one healthy going to be healthy enough to play first base? Do they come off those high demanding positions and? put them over at second base and first base, you know, somewhere where there's not so much demand on the body Mm -hmm. on top of the length that they've been playing those highly demanding positions. How long is that going to, you know, how quickly will that push that decline?
2: Yeah. Both those guys have been very, very durable, but how long do they stay that durable? Uh, One thing I keep wondering about, like uh, we already saw so that when, uh, when the Darvish extension got done, you know, it seems like the market for pitching just went bananas this year all of a sudden we're seeing middle rotation guys signing for what we thought was going to be ace money as we went into free agency so what's a 30 million dollar contract going to look like five six seven years from now um when pujol signed his deal it was what 24 million a year i think which at the time was astronomical it was mind-boggling this was a rod money Like we'd only seen a couple of contracts of that, of that scale. Now it seems like these $30 million contracts are, I mean, they're not,
1: they're not commonplace, but they're not astronomical either. For your perennial all-stars in, you know, class A, uh, you know, almost hall of fame potential players, it's, it's definitely worth $31 million. It's, I think Tatis' highest earnings are in the next couple of years, whereas 39 million for like five years. Like the height of his of his age from like I think it was twenty five or twenty-six to to right around thirty, it's thirty-nine million dollars a year. He'll so, be
2: making thirty-six million dollars from age thirty through thirty-five on the on the contract, according to spot track. Okay. I thought I saw thirty nine, but thirty-six. Um you know, maybe there's some other calculation where you're factoring in, like you're averaging in the signing bonus or something yeah. like that. But that's what it said. Adjusted salary thirty six million seven hundred and fourteen thousand dollars two hundred and eighty five. Wait, yeah,
1: yes. In, in three years, that's going to be nothing,
2: right? That's what I'm. That's what I'm wondering. So yeah. maybe Tatis is going to be sitting here at age thirty one, looking around, going, "Okay, I'm making thirty six mil. That guy over there is making forty five. So you know, I want my extra nine. But you kind of, you kind of give you you give up that right by signing yeah. this kind of a long deal. I, I mean. Yeah. His it's generational wealth. His yeah. grandbabies, grandbabies are set for life. <laughs> yeah. Even if he's
1: playing in California, yeah. And and, and and so you know, with with the with Manny opting out, I just I, I watched that interview um, in the clubhouse with with just a, kind of a, an, an eye to you know I'm a fan, so I'm trying to pick out any kind of head nod, any kind of eye, I you know eye glance everything and it seemed like because because Kevin ac asked the question, so you're gonna be a padre in 2024, you know, and you, he gets this little glint in the eye. This I i can't he, a guy can't play poker to save his life. Um <laughs> uh, you know we'll see you know I already told him how they're you know, gonna opt out blah blah blah. You just it didn't sound like a normal guy that wasn't gonna stay with the organization would say it. I think there'd be right. some more finality in that language even even if it's you know platitudes and, and just rhetoric um You just felt, I'm like, dude, he's, he's, it's probably getting hammered out right now as he's asked that question. It just doesn't take over, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes five days.
2: They got to play a little bit of hardball, you know, act like, hey, you know, I might walk, make it worth my while to stay. The what, what got me was uh, I was listening to the radio when Ben and Woods. We're talking to Manny and they had him sign the lifetime contract that we will be best friends forever, which yeah. I love. But at the very end, right before Manny's about to stand up and walk away, he goes, Oh, there may be more soon or something like that. There was yeah, a little
1: we'll phrase. See. Like, we'll, we'll see. Maybe more to come. Yeah. Right, yeah. Which is and a towel, like, which is definitely a towel.
2: I mean, we see Manny buddied up with Peter Seidler all the time. Yeah. We know that they traveled to Colorado to go check out the home uh, clubhouse. So they could renovate the Padres home clubhouse and, you know, looking for ideas. So if Manny's got a word in how you're remodeling your home, you yeah. know, that's, that's <laughs> not the
1: kind of thing you do when you're getting ready for a divorce. I am just not sure how they're going to get the brown and yellow lights that you see in some of these, you see them in some of the nicer colleges and some of the, uh, some of the pro clubhouses where they have the purple lighting uh, that's kind of goes around the outside of, of the lockers. How are they going to get the yellow and brown to look really cool? They'll, they'll, some,
2: they'll find a way
1: maybe some lasers you know i don't know
2: they'll find a way you know with manny you know he likes the bling he likes stuff yeah. a little flashy so they'll they'll have they'll, it'll be nice so for
1: the you know for for at least the next six to eight years this team is going to be uber competitive uh pushing for a ring be. almost every year and, and there's no there's no end. like you said before i don't think there's going to be all right dismantling the team or fire sale i think peter Sandler was asked that earlier this week and he's like I don't even know what that is, right? Um,
2: you dismissed so, the whole idea of a fire cell right there. Like that will not right. happen as long
1: as I right. am captain of this ship. On, on top of well, there is no trade clause with Manny. There is no trade clause with uh, with Tatis. I am not sure about Xander Bogarts, but mm-hmm. like these are our guys. We're riding. Let's ride. Well, now, so Tatis uh, Machado is ten
2: year. He's about to get his ten and five rights. 10 years of 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 service time and then five years with the current the team. team. At some point that'll kick in with Bogarts and then later on with Tatis. Um uh, so that I mean that could come into play toward the ends of these contracts, but let's worry about that when we get there. Let's yeah. right now, let's enjoy the ride. Dude. It's the the gates are open, spring training is happening, baseball is being played
1: again. Dude, let's enjoy 14 run games on like hit after hit after bomb after double. Oh, I'm um, I'm so ready for a bunch of that. God, so real, real quick before we go any further, we uh we talked to Tim Haggerty, the voice of the El Paso Chihuahuas, um earlier this week, and he talks about his book "A Thousand and One Stories in the Minor Leagues," and we talked about the El Paso Chihuahuas and a couple of the players there. So coming later on in the episode, we're gonna have a full on interview with him. Where uh, just a great interview. We talk about the the team. We talk about what's going on with the Chihuahuas, and we also talk about his book, which has some really cool stories. It has a thousand and one stories. I need to get I need to get a copy of that book. Yeah, it comes
2: I out in paid- about a month. I need to pre order it so it's it's here for my <laughs> my birthday's at the end of March. So i make a
1: great birthday present for myself. Ah, uh, yeah, and I get paid tomorrow, so they can i to both tomorrow. There you go. But speaking of fourteen run games, and you know, what do you think about the team so far? I've Everything's everything's good. Everything's looking
2: good so far. You know, right now you you try not to worry about wins and losses. You right. try not to look at box scores and who's hitting what. It's how are guys looking? Are they moving well? Are they are they at the end of the game is everybody healthy? Um, you know, like today Gavin Lux got hurt and yeah. I know he's a Dodger and I'm supposed to be tough. anti-Dodgers, but I don't want yep. to see no. anybody get
1: hurt. No, never. And the way that he
2: he went down, I mean, he was in a lot of pain. It could be something with his knee or his ankle. And if he's on the shelf for the whole season, I mean, that's that's bad for baseball. That is so bad for baseball. I want to see all of our guys healthy and doing well. Um so far, everybody's been playing pretty darn well. The pitchers all look pretty good. The yeah. batters, they all look pretty good. You know, there's some guys that are off to slow starts on the box score, but they're still putting together good at bats. Uh, I don't see anybody that's looking like they got a lot of rust to shake off.
1: No, um, and you know who's really impressed me early on is uh, Julio Tehran. Yeah, yesterday's he- starter. Oh my god. I mean, I remember when he was pitching for the Braves and he would come by and just be a buzzsaw uh, through, a, through a weak Pottery's lineup. But, God, you were out of, out of the league for a few years. You kind of put it together back in independent into into, ball into the Mexican league. He looked sharp. Like, where are we going to put him? Is he going to be our long reliever? I mean, there's other guys to consider, but I was pleasantly surprised on how well he pitched. You know, the one thing that's
2: missing from the spring training broadcast, and it's irrelevant for the first game of the season, but is the uh, the velocity. Yeah. I don't know how these guys pitch velocity is. So Tehran, it, he's got, his pitches have movement. He looked like he was locating pretty well, but is his fastball. Like, is he sitting like 93, 95, or is he yeah. more like 89 to 91? Right. And you can't really pick that up on TV unless you're watching a lot of baseball, which none of us have been for a while.
1: Right. When well, you can't pick it up on the TV to see that Ryan Weathers was throwing, you know, 96 to 97. Right. Consistently. Um, which is really good to see. Now, he's um, done that before. Yeah. I mean,
2: that's He he comes and goes with the velocity. It, it ebbs and flows throughout the season. But if he can stay there, I mean, he could be a weapon. And that's the thing. There's so many guys right now. I don't remember seeing a spring training roster that has this kind of depth. I like to go on fan graphs. They have their roster resource, which is a yeah. great, great resource. Um, and I would go in there and I would snip out all the non-roster invitees and a handful of the AAA guys. And in the past, it was like a whole bunch of C-level prospects and and a couple of retreads. We're hoping something happens, right. and we're praying for those guys to make the back end of the rotation. Right Now we're looking at who's going to be like the 9, 10, 11 starter in El Paso, and there's so many fresh faces with, with veteran experience, and there's prospects that are knocking on the door. Yeah. I. That's the the overwhelming part to me is the number of of names and faces
1: that we're seeing this year, dude. Yeah, Jay Groom, uh, Brett Honeywell looked really good in his first. Yeah, and these are all first outings. These are just first outings. It's spring training. They're just getting their feet underneath them. Uh, looked really sharp. Good curveball. Good fastball. Um, and a Jay screwball. Groom, yeah, Drake Jay Groom. Just you're right. And like we could challenge for another title in in A just on the basis of the depth of the pitching, just in the pitching. yep. You got guys like Brandon Dixon that, that might not make the squad. Taylor Colway, who is going to definitely make a name for himself this spring going back, you know, more than likely making it back to triple to a, but it just, it, it's going to be stacked. So somebody that's already, uh, it impro- impressed me a little bit. Uh,
2: David Dahl. He's yeah. somebody you mentioned. You saw him, uh, hitting in the cage. Um, yeah. And if he can come back like the guy that he was back in 2019, 2020, um, you know, he was playing center field in Colorado at elevation with the largest center field anywhere. Yeah, if he can be on the on the depth chart for center field, uh, you know, being a they need somebody to play right field the first 20 games. And then once Tatis comes back, if he knocks Jose Azokar or Adam Engel or somebody like that off the off the, the, the big league roster, right. You know, there's, there's so much depth there. Yeah. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm really impressed by the amount of depth that, that Preller and his guys have put together for this particular season.
1: You know, also was also impressed. So I saw David Dahl. He was there at when, when, I was at fantasy camp. So that's the beginning of what, February beginning of February, he was there and he was the only major league guy there working with the major league, uh, coaching staff there hitting in the cage, And so he's putting in the work. And so it's really showing it's early. It's showing up. Um, Who else is kind of impressed right out of the gate? First game is the damage duo, brother, Jackson Merrill. Yes. Three for three in that first game. It's a lot harder than you're making it look, believe me. And he hasn't got to hit sense, but still,
2: yeah. But all three of those hits, the first one was yeah. was shooting it through the five five hole. Yeah. Um, he hit a nice little line drive up the middle. Yeah, he's using the whole field, uh, making some nice plays on defense. That's one of my favorite things about spring training is once yeah. you get past the fourth fifth inning and the starters start to leave the game, and then I'm looking at the box score like, okay, who's in now? Oh, Preston Tucker. Oh, we got we got uh. uh we got Brett Sullivan behind the plate. We got Matt oh Matthew Batten's in there. Oh, Jansen Jansen White. Who's Jansen White?
1: Right. You, <laughs> I love that part of these games. You know, Liberato, like Liberato came in and I'm like, okay, I know that guy. He was here last year. There are a bunch of names that I don't recognize. And certainly in today's game with the Dodgers, it got to be not even names on the back of the jerseys. Like the last two pitchers, I couldn't even tell you. They must have been just major league invites to just, I have no idea. I have no idea who they were. <laughs> well, we saw Moises Lugo yesterday. Yeah. He was looking what? really good. Yeah. Uh,
2: I, and I saw that Aaron Leisher got into the game. I was happy to see Aaron Leisher get in there because we saw him up in Lake Elsinore back in, what was that, 2019, I think, was when he was in Lake Elsinore. Yeah. So, so I'm i glad got a to picture, see him stick
1: around. I got a picture on my computer of him next to Tom Cosgrove. And it was the day that I gave Mackenzie Gore the two Dominate the Day shirts. Uh, he kept one and he gave one, I think it was to Aaron laser. And then you okay. see him, I might've been Tom Costco, but he's he lifting up the shirt and air Leisure's right right behind him. And now they're pushing for a, a spot in the bullpen. Certainly. Oh, for
2: sure. Yeah. I mean, you've got so many guys that that's the thing it's, it's hyper competitive. Yeah. We look at spring training, and we're focusing on the major league guys. Like, okay, Manny Machado, he's going through his routine. He's he's got his drills. He's you know he knows his timeline. Right. But these other guys that are coming in late, these can be the most important games that they play all season, because they've never got so many eyes looking at them, so yeah. many opportunities that could open up just from what happens in a couple of plays right now.
1: Well, and and certainly if. You know, when those when it all scratches out, when it all kind of balances out, everyone goes to their affiliates, if there's a trade, those guys might get a better look at another organization because there's so few spots on their 26-man roster. Mm-hmm. yeah that's a point that Ben Higgins was
2: making this morning um was that we could see trades i mean there's always minor trades going on as spring training happens because somebody gets hurt here they need a little bit extra depth there somebody's performing really well but they don't have an opportunity in this spot and and so you see guys shuffle around um so I'm, there's a lot of opportunity for guys out here and then and then you see the minor league guys that are brought up that aren't even on the uh the non roster invitee roster and they get an opportunity to come up and shine I'm waiting to see. I'm waiting to see Kevin Cops. Really? I. I is he is he in camp? He's well. He's not a. He's he's not with Major League camp. He's in the minor league camp. But I'm I'm sure he's going to get pulled up one of these right. days in one of these right. games. Uh, the next couple of days, we're going to see all the World Baseball Classic guys leave. So that's going to open out. up some place for some infielders. We'll probably see Jackson Merrill starting some more games at shortstop.
1: Let the morale Madness begin, man! Tirso yeah. be- It's funny, and I feel I feel kind of bad. I'm like, oh, Tirso, oh, oh, yeah, Tirso Ornelas. I remember that guy. It's a he make or a- break year for him. It really is a make or break year for him, and it's. I was kind of like, oh, that's great. I- oh yeah, I forgot about. <laughs> I forgot about Tirso O'Neillis. How could you? I just it was. I mean, it's just been so. You know, it's been so devastated. The, you know, the minor league system. On top of the team's been so good. Um, they're not even giving those, you know, the, the, your Musgroves, your Blake Snells starts. They're giving them starts in the backfields because they already know they're going to make the team. They don't have nothing to show out there. So they're letting these guys come in and getting good looks from not only our organization, but certainly other organizations as a whole, where it's almost a showcase of like, this is our depth. What do you got? You got something for us? You want something? Some midseason uh, trade? You might need
2: something. Yo, know, that's a good point you make right there. That that brings up to mind. So I'm going out to spring training in a few weeks, uh, in a couple of weeks here. Um, uh, and traditionally we would order, we would, we would get our tickets ahead of time in advance. And we're not going to do that this time. We might for one or two games we know we're going to go to, but there's going to be so many backlot games more than usual yeah. because of all these guys in camp. So I don't want to, I don't want to shoehorn myself into going to tonight's game. Because then you'll find out, like at three o'clock, you go, "Oh, hey, there's going to be a backlot game. I want to stay here. I don't want to pay
1: money to go in there. I want to stay here and see the real show." Well, and if you remember, if you go to the front, and we'll discuss this off air, but if you go to the front, you can get a schedule. Oh yeah, like the schedule oh, yeah. for the day. Hey, don't give this. Don't give all the secrets out. Ah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. So
2: uh, All right. So before we kick it to Tim, I wanted to point out one thing that Sam Levitt said on his pregame the other day. And he was talking about just the experience of being a fan throughout the years. And as we grew up as Padres fans, we had Tony Gwynn year in, year out. We knew that that was going to be our guy. And then there was a rotating cast around him that, you know, you might get attached to this guy or that guy. And they all came and, and went. Now, kids that are growing up that are going to the ballpark, they can pick one of a handful of guys, and they you know that they're going to be here for a long time. Yeah. You can they can go get their jersey, they can get their t-shirt, they can put their fat head poster up on the wall, and not worry about having to rip it down because they got traded in the
1: offseason. <laughs> well, that God, thank God, it's it, the poor parents of the Padre fans because, like every year. All right, you got your Catfish jersey, you got your Xander Bogus jersey. Okay, let's get you a You Darvish jersey. Like it's going to be expensive to be a parent and a Padre fan, not only with ticket sales but with just getting the merch, just getting uh, the swag. That's why they make the the jerseys, the T-shirt
2: <laughs> jerseys too. You don't have to spend two hundred bucks to 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 wear your player's name on on your back, or you can make your own. You don't, but when there's
1: so many names to choose from, you got to have one of each true (laughs) like pokemon (laughs) gotta catch them all all right well hey you can reach me on on twitter at sd donovan
2: i'm at zippy underscore tms and let's throw it to the great tim haggerty and we
1: were tim haggerty tim haggerty has been the play-by-play announcer for the El Paso Chihuahua since her inaugural season in 2014. And going back to when the Padres were a Triple-A team, was in Tucson, and has been a part of the Padres family since 2004, going way back to the Mobile Bay Bears. Uh, he just finished his second book, Tales from the Dugout, 1001 Humorous, Inspirational, and Wild Antidotes from Minor League Baseball. And he joins us here on Friars on the Farm. Tim, how are you doing?
0: Great. Thanks for having me. Second book? Just- yes. Uh, My first came out in 2012. It's called Root for the Home Team, Minor League Baseball's Most Off-The-Wall Team Names. It's about the craziest team names in minor league history. And actually, it was that book that um, spurred this one. I've always loved researching baseball history. And when researching something for that book, I was looking at a newspaper archive from the 1880s and came across this story. A wild bull ran on the field and delayed a Texas League game. And I thought, I've never heard this story before. And if I've never heard it, then probably most fans haven't. So that's really what started the past decade of collecting the craziest minor league stories that have ever happened.
1: You know, real quick, and we're going to run off the rails here. Um, I listened to the minor, uh, my MILB, the show before the show podcast. And I think they still do the little segment where um, one of the guys does a um, yeah, ghost of the miners. Yeah. Well, the real name, two fake names and one real name. And you got to guess what real name it was. And they are and some of the craziest names were like, Oh my God! They were called the the ditch diggers. Really?
0: Right. Yeah. There's kind of a perception that like this day and age is when the crazy minor league team names have taken place, which is true. They are crazy, but it's not a new phenomenon. Um, that's what I I liked about my book. You know, you in there you see the Texarkana casket makers and the Ilion typewriters.
1: <laughs> Sponsored by. I'm Ileon trying to think of, writer, you know you guys.
0: Right? You guys are in California. I was trying to think of a crazy California team name. There is the Petaluma Incubators.
2: Uh, now, how many of those had to do with the actual profession of the? Like a lot of the old minor league teams were associated with a a factory or a company, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah, what the temp- uh, team name came from oftentimes what the industry was in that city. The Oswego starch boxes in New York, based on a starch box factory. And the other thing that would happen <laughs> is sports writers would give a team a nickname in the newspaper, and it would stick. Teams didn't really have as official of names as they do these days. So the uh, Sioux Falls Canaries, of course, there's no Canaries in South Dakota. Somebody wrote me and told me that uh, apparently there's few, if any, Canaries even in the United States. Um, But they got that team name based on their bright yellow uniforms. And the newspaper would write them as the Canaries in their game summaries. And that's how that team name evolved.
2: Oh, well, one of the funner names in baseball, I think, is the El Paso Chihuahuas. We actually had the Brandios guys on, and they told us the whole uh, story about how they wound up nominating the the name and the process of getting it selected. Um, were, were you the, you were involved with some of that process, right?
0: So I was the broadcaster for the Tucson Padres, which was the team that preceded El Paso from 2011 through 2013. That's where the Padres A team was. So as that process was evolving, um, evolving, I should say. I think I just merged two words, unfolding oh, right. and evolving. <laughs> unvolving.
1: Hey, anyway, I, I hope
0: I don't do that on the air uh, next month. Anyway, uh, so I was still with Tucson at the time that that process was unfolding. So I was maybe aware of it. Maybe I had a little advanced tip on what the team name was going to be, but not too far in advance. They did a great job of keeping that secret. And the cool thing was the name was introduced in October of 2013. At a downtown theater in El Paso, and I had a chance to be involved and be on stage. Um, I didn't get to actually announce it, but I sort of introduced the people that did, which was really fun to be there for the birth of that brand.
2: Uh, I understand that there was a little bit of a backlash at first. There was kind of a a cringe, uh, but then it, over time, El Paso's really embraced the Chihuahuas.
0: That's exactly right. It was mixed opinions at that time. Some people thought we were crazy. The thing I noticed, though, Roy, was the online comments. Not a single person said anything about the logos. Yeah. Nobody was mad at the logos. They thought they were great. And I agreed with that. And I think that Brandios and the Chihuahuas did a good job of giving something for everybody. The way they phrased it at the time was there's a, there's a manly man out there that doesn't want to wear a cap with a Chihuahua on it, but he has options. He has the crossbones and baseball logo. He has an EP logo for El Paso. Uh, to me, the stuff I've bought. I love the EP logo, it really shows the city and it has a star in the middle of the P, which is our star in the mountain, a uh, very famous uh, image here in El Paso when you drive by the mountains off the highway. So it definitely was a mixed reaction. But I think now, 10 years later, people here couldn't envision the team being named anything else.
1: Yeah. Well, and the little scar over the eye that's kind of like, is it a tough kind of feeling? He's always going, err, it's fear the ears and hashtag grr. Um, it's just been, it has taken off, but real quick before we get too far, the book right now, Tales from the Dugout is pre-sale and then when is it released and when can, uh, when can listeners actually get their books, uh, in the mail or in, uh, in stores?
0: It'll be in stores on March 28th. And right now it's available for pre-order on Amazon and on all other stores that sell books. I'm told the pre-orders are going well, which is a great honor. And it's a good looking book. It has a lot of illustrations in it. I'm lucky enough, I have an advanced copy here. I know this is audio, but uh, I don't know. I just right. opened it up. and Yeah, there's like
1: <laughs> lots bunch of, of illustrations. Me, I don't here's read a, that well.
0: <laughs> here's an illustration of a guy who got released in 1947 because he was reading comic books in the dugout.
1: Uh. <laughs> what about but these they, days checking your phone, right?
0: That's right. Yeah, they have to keep those phones in the clubhouse. Otherwise, they might do that. You're right.
1: Okay, so the right, so into you, this season...
2: You mentioned that it's the 10-year anniversary for the, uh, the Chihuahuas. They just celebrated that last year with the 10-year anniversary uniforms. Are there going to be celebrations throughout the season?
0: Yes, for sure. Uh, this is the 10th year. It's amazing. Time has flown by. The inaugural year was 2014. So as you mentioned, there some new looks, New Jersey, um, some really great stuff available in the team store. And it's going to be fun for me since I've been here since the beginning to kind of think back about some former players we've had. There's been more than 75 Chihuahuas that have gone up and made their Major League debut after playing for El Paso, most of those with San Diego, but a few exceptions otherwise that um, played for the Chihuahuas, then were traded and acquired by someone else and made it to the Majors. Also, a lot of success on the field. Uh, El Paso's had only one losing season in the 10-year history of the team,
2: five playoff
0: appearances. So that part of it, of course, is full credit to the Padres. They're supplying the players and the coaches, and that's been really fun. Um, and what's happened guys, you guys are in California you'll appreciate this, but when I first got here, El Paso really didn't have one strict major league allegiance. There are some Dodgers fans here. Uh, games were carried on the air on TV and on radio here. And there's also a lot of Mexican Americans in El Paso that loved Fernando mania in the 1980s. I think that was part of that, but you know, we're closest to Phoenix, uh, the Rangers, of course. And the Astros, you have some fans there, but it's kind of a big city that didn't have a major league allegiance. And it's been really cool to see how many Padres fans have popped up in El Paso. I see Padres hats. I was in Walgreens one day and I saw Padres t-shirts for sale in El Paso, Texas. And I think that's because of the Chihuahuas.
1: Well, I just watched one of your alumni this morning before I got on. Uh, Mackenzie Gore made his uh, first start with the Washington nationals. And as, as our podcast worked with him early on when he was in Lake Elsinore, um, that was one trade that really, really, really hurt um, on a personal level, on a personal level to see him go. But we wish anyone that gets traded, I, I continue to follow him and and wish the best for him because it is such a small community here in uh, in kind of in the baseball world. So let's move on. Another guy who's, who's kind of making a little bit of a name for himself is Brent Rooker. And last year he went on. It seemed like every other day he was hitting home runs. Uh, how fun was it watching him play?
0: He was outstanding, and he had quite a year. Um, He begins the season thinking he's going to split time between Minnesota and AAA St. Paul. And at the very beginning of the season, literally a day or two into the season, gets traded and that Chris Paddock deal. Then comes to El Paso, had a few small bursts in San Diego, then gets traded at the deadline in July to Kansas City and splits there between Omaha and Kansas City. Uh, So you see why these guys really don't put down roots in any of the cities that they play in. He played for six teams in one year but it was interesting interviewing him that is a focused sharp guy I mean just he just speaks in such a confident fast way he would show up to the ballpark and have a plan that day Um, I'm really impressed by this day and age I think a lot of players are like that because when it comes to their diet their conditioning their preparations on video their preparations in the batting cage they really show up to the ballpark like a lot of people do their job they know where they're going to be at two o'clock at three o'clock at four o'clock and leading right up into the game and he epitomized that he showed up with a game plan starting at noon
2: used to have an older player coming to the chihuahuas um and so i i wonder if that that's something the guys learn as they're going through their 20s in the, the minors um somebody who's on the opposite side of that uh eggy rosario had a big breakout year with the season and he was kind of up and down throughout the season and i've wondered about the 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 having a plan and a preparation that's something that guys have to learn have to learn how to develop i'm wondering if that's something that eggy uh kind of sort of put together last year as he finally hit some consistency toward the end of the year
0: he had a great season i can't remember a player i've seen that improved more within a season than him at the beginning of the year he was having a tough time on defense he was making a lot of errors And by the end of the year, he he turned into be a dependable, and from what I saw, actually a very good fielder by the end of the year. And Jared Sandberg, the manager at the time, was talking about that, how what they really did was they spent time in the afternoons on his defensive mechanics. We talk so much about hitting mechanics when it comes to where a guy's hands is or their stride and all the million things that goes into a strong swing. But things as subtle as Eggie's glove being open as he pursues the ball and is it facing the ball – it made a world of difference for him. Uh, so I was happy to see him get up, make his Major League debut. Unfortunately, he's hurt right now. Yeah, I really felt for him when I saw Bob Melvin's comments that this year especially, he would have had so much time in Major League Spring training because of the WBC. So it's really a missed opportunity for him. And as we tape this, I just saw Padres PR note that uh, Matthew Batten was scratched today. Kind of the same thing. Uh. He has a chance to play in front of Bob Melvin, in front of the executives. Uh, He remains on the 40-man roster. I think a call-up option if, in fact, he comes to El Paso to start the year. Don't know. But uh, hopefully that's not a serious injury for him. It said uh, a calf strain. Hopefully that's just a day or two because, you know, it's funny. We we think about spring training as this relaxed time. But for guys like Matthew Batten, these are some of the most important games all year because of who he's playing in front of.
1: Well, watching yesterday's game, and and Matthew Batten is a a friend of the podcast. He's been on – I think we've had him on twice – he hit in another friend of the podcast, Jackson Merrill with a double down the line. It was just great to see not only Jackson Merrill do well, but bat. you know, another guy that's been on the podcast, knock him in. And we have a thing here. We call the podcast mojo because all last year, I mean, Batten was just having such a fantastic year in El Paso. Every, every episode we're like, all right, here it is. Our, our weekly get Matthew Batten on the 40 man, get him up there, get him a cup of coffee, Uh, finally made it up there. And like you said, this year, Is there to impress? Is there to really show that, you know, not only does he, he belongs in the major leagues, that he's going to be seriously considered if an injury happens, God forbid, uh, you know, to a player or they need someone to call up that he's going to be there.
0: Well, hopefully I'll have a good broadcast season now. Maybe I'll get that broadcast mojo that you guys advertise.
2: (laughs) Hey, yeah, let's hope so. We can, we can work on that. All right. So another young player that showed a lot of improvement throughout the year was Luis Camposano. Um, He had a a fairly solid year at the plate, but it sounds like what really improved throughout the season was his work behind the plate on defense. Uh, Both the mechanics during the game, but also the communication, the preparation in between games and, you know, off the field. Uh, Can you speak to what you saw out of Luis this year?
0: Yes, he also had a great season and he's another guy that was very active in the afternoons in the bullpen working on everything from pitch framing to how he's receiving pitches. Cause even though we have the automated ball strike system last season in AAA and will continue to have this year and the major leagues, they don't. So you'd still see AAA catchers framing pitches, even though it was a machine calling the balls and strikes and not the umpire. because if he gets called up to San Diego, he has to do that. He also had a great season throwing out runners. Uh, it was interesting to track the two El Paso catchers last year, Brett Sullivan and Luis Campesano. Uh, Both on the 40-man roster. Wouldn't be surprised to see both of them play with the Padres this year. Brett had a lower catcher's ERA. uh, Maybe had the edge when it came to calling pitches. But Luis had a great season throwing out runners. He has a great arm. And it was interesting to see. I saw the Padres had him playing some first base in winter ball. And with the National League having the DH now, I think Luis is really someone that can help the Padres. Maybe he catches a couple days a week. Maybe he DHs a few days a week. Uh, I'm interested to in how that plays out. Of course, Nola is the obvious starting catcher, but um, I think you're right, Roy. Luis had a great AAA season last year.
1: Well, and certainly with um, now with the changes in MLB, that there'll be a little bit of a better running game. And it's long known that, that Capicino has a cannon going into second base. So it's going to be interesting to see how that comes back. You know, throwing out game kind of comes back into play in Major League Baseball with the changes in the step-off rule. Another guy that we've been yeah. really pounding the uh, the table for is Taylor Callaway.
0: I agree with you. He's outstanding. He gets on base all the time. Uh, there were times last year late in the season that he led all of AAA in on-base percentage. He can play three outfield spots. Very good batting average as well uh, in his yeah. first full AAA season in 2021. I think he had the third best batting average in the entire Pacific Coast League. And it's interesting. He really has overcome the odds to even make it this far 30 something round pick out of a small college in Wisconsin. (laughs) He told me that the day he got drafted, he was surprised. He didn't think he was going to be drafted. He got the phone call and said, Oh, okay. (laughs) Um, But what a great story. If a guy like that can make it to even one major league game, the odds were very much against him. So I was happy to see the Padres re-signed him. I'd expect him to be back in El Paso to start the year. But um, yeah, I could definitely see him playing for San Diego at some point. I guess really the only thing he doesn't have is the huge home run numbers. But when you're getting on base as much as he does, I think uh, all 30 major league organizations would like guys like that in their org somewhere.
2: Well, he could play a little bit of first base as well. Um, That's right. So the early part of the season, the first 20 games, everybody's asking questions about who's going to be picking up the the slack until Tatis can come back. Um, You know, people are, mentioning David Dahl and guys that are already on the 40 man roster but Taylor Colway I could see him you know if he really had a really strong spring he could make his name known. Um now you mentioned the uh automated ball strike system th- that was used in El Paso last year or throughout AAA. I understand that it's going to evolve a little bit from how it was deployed that in the um, in the fall league it was more of a challenge system, right?
0: Yes, they actually made an adjustment midway through the AAA season last year, where select ballparks would switch to the challenge system. El Paso was not one of those parks. El Paso, it remained every single pitch, was called into an umpire's earpiece using the automated ball strike system. And it actually says the word ball or strike. And it's funny, understandably, fans, most of which go to five or less games a year, continue to yell at the home plate umpire. Come on, Blue. Blue. And there was actually one game in El Paso where the umpire turned around, faced the fans and went, I'm not, I'm not making these calls. Leave me alone.
1: <laughs> right. All the Savannah, Savannah bananas with the umpire doing the funky stuff. Um, that's it. Did, did you hear anything, you know, not necessarily from the organization, but from anyone else, any other broadcasters that kind of had took, took maybe issue with, with the balls and strike. Did the balls seem high? Did it seem low? I mean, was this, was the strike zone tight?
0: There were occasional complaints. Um, Matthew Batten actually was a supporter of it, who we mentioned earlier. His analogy was it's like going from one basketball game to another. And in the first one, the hoop is 10 feet. And on the next one, the hoop is 10 and a half feet. Whereas an automatic ball strike system stabilizes the strike zone. You don't have to guess based on the umpire. There were some unusual situations that I think would have to be overcome. Old friend Estee Uri Ruiz, now with the Oakland A's. He was uh, one of those right-handed batters who had his arms right over home plate, and he had this pad. And on an inside pitch, he did what a lot of hitters do, sort of turns the body so it looks like he's dodging it, but actually he's leaning the arm a little bit, and he gets hit by a pitch. And there was one night in Sacramento that he gets hit by the pitch. Umpire gives him first base, but the automated ball strike employee later told me they called it a strike. And as you guys probably know, the strike supersedes the hit-by-pitch. If you get hit... By a strike, that's a strike. You don't get first. So I think there's little things like that, that MLB is evaluating. I think they've done a great job in general with rule experiments in the minor leagues. They've taken their time because there's situations like that that unfold that maybe you can't think of in a boardroom. Right. You know, I think about that with the pitch timer. It's like the umpire has the ability, they make a signal like this, similar to the home run signal, to reset the pitch timer. For example, if a guy hits a foul ball, but it bounces back on the field, and an outfielder has to go pick it up and toss it up into the stands. The pitch timer's not running then. That's the empire's discretion to say, okay, we're going to give this guy a moment to get back. And I think that's the value of the experiments, is things like that unfold yeah. that you can feel out.
1: In the, uh, so, in the pitches, I think we're stepping off to reset the clock in the minor leagues as well.
0: Exactly. That, that's why I love that they added the mound disengagement limit, the step-off rule. The step-off rule is a pitch clock rule. A lot of people, I'm seeing them on TV, they think it's to stop those pitchers who just throw over and throw over. That's not why. In 2021, pitchers would step off in AAA when that pitch clock was getting down low, and they were getting a reset on the timer. So it made the pitch clock useless. Now they can still do that, but they just can't do it unlimited times.
2: Interesting. All right. So – um We've talked about a handful of guys. You know that there's a lot of people coming up through the minors. Um, who are some people that you're excited that you think you might see this year in uh, in El Paso so that maybe you haven't seen in the past?
0: Yeah, it's uh, always a fun or interesting guessing game. In late February, um, sometimes I'm able to predict the AAA roster. Sometimes I'm way off. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> This
2: year is going to be a hard one to guess. Yeah. For sure.
0: Yeah, there's many players right now in Padres Spring Training that could be with San Diego, could be with El Paso. You mentioned the outfield situation. uh, David Dahl, Adam Engel, Taylor Colway, Jose Azucar. There's a bunch of guys that, depending on how this shakes out with the Tati suspension remaining, who's going to be in El Paso, who's going to be in San Diego. I would... Guess I don't have any insight on this yet, but I think one of the El Paso catchers might be Chandler Siegel, who I heard was a really good defensive catcher yeah. at Double A San Antonio, was there the past two years. Um
2: and a and a great guy. We've we've yeah. interviewed him. Okay. Him and Michael Cantu are are two like they've got personality, just yeah. really good dudes.
0: Good to hear, and I agree with you on Michael Cantu, one of the most likable players we've ever had in El Paso, very positive. Um I think that you know, if I had to guess, maybe the catchers in El Paso are two of the names we mentioned there? Cantu, Siegel, um, along with maybe Brett Sullivan. Yeah, I don't know, but
1: you know, and with with uh, with so many pitches that the Padres are same this year, you're going to get it if say Ryan Weathers or Jay Groom don't make uh, you know a spot in the rotation or in the bullpen, like the pitching seems to be strong as well. But there's also like Julio
2: Tehran and Cole Hamels that might wind up Brett, out there. Uh, Brett Honeywell, like there's, you guys are going to be stacked
1: this year.
0: I think so too. Um, And yeah, that's what's fun about AAA is also seeing those veteran established guys. I mean, having a chance to talk baseball with Robinson Cano last year, who was great and was positive and interacted with fans and did interviews. And it's funny over the years when you have guys like that, they are not the cranky ones who think they're above AAA. I think there's such a professionalism there. They recognize there's more to their job than on the field and they get it. Uh, Over the years, we've had Jeff Francoeur, James Loney, Edwin Jackson, Cano. And those are the players that they'll say yes, say, okay, can we do it at this time? Um, I think there's kind of a misconception with AAA sometimes that the players are cranky. Right. It occasionally happens. It's usually the type of guys that are up and down that maybe have a little bit of major league time that think they should have more. Uh, but those are the exception. That's pretty rare.
2: You know, yeah, you just- mentioned uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and we talk about the El Paso shuttle. When you get a guy like uh, like Nabil Matt, who gets optioned up. and down and he's back and forth and that's got to be a pain in the ass getting on the plane you know every week but if you're brent rooker and you're in minneapolis or you're st paul you get called up to minneapolis you're just driving across town you don't even need to unpack
0: (laughs) yeah there's a a few triple a cities that have that advantage tacoma and seattle worcester and boston um but somebody pointed out to me that it really only applies when both teams are home true what you're saying definitely does happen but um It kind of made me realize it might happen even less than we think.
1: You know, one of the things I was thinking was uh, with this year, with Tatis being at the first 20 games, is the speculation is where is he going to go? Is he going to stay in extended? Is he going to go out to AAA or Double A, depending on where the team is? I think the team is back home when when he is able to come back to the team. So it would be interesting to see if maybe he goes to um, either El Paso for a week, maybe prior, Or if he goes up to Lake Elsinore to see maybe a little bit closer to the team, but it's going to be interesting to see where he does end up. When he's eligible to come off uh, suspension, the team will
2: be in Arizona. They're playing the Diamondbacks on April 20th.
0: Close to El Paso. There we are. (laughs) Right? Um, We would love to have him. I have no insight on what the game plan is there. It's funny. The Chihuahuas have almost had Tatis um, three times. (laughs) So oh, he's, never, he's, never, 20, he's never
2: been on the roster there, is has he? Never.
0: He's never played a AAA game. I've covered more games with his dad than him. His uh, his dad was, uh,
1: <laughs> wow. was trying
0: to get back to the big leagues in 2008. I saw him with the Mets AAA team. I saw him hit a home run in Portland, Oregon. Oh. Um, but I see we only have a couple minutes left on this recording, but I'll make it fast. Uh, so the Chihuahuas have almost had to tease three times. In 2018... He was playing well at AA San Antonio. And the word was he might come up for the El Paso playoffs. That year, El Paso had a great team and made the playoffs. But that was the year he injured his thumb sliding at San Antonio. So then in 2019, uh, some Padres executives talking about the upcoming season. They said, oh, you guys are going to have some great prospects. Naylor will be there. Tatis will be there. And you guys remember that was the thought going into 2019 that Tatis would be going to AAA. But it wasn't until he made such an impression, such a splash when he scored from second base on that play. And then there's that story of how Ian Kinsler and Hosmer went in and spoke to AJ Preller and said, this guy's got to be on the team. Yeah. So he didn't come to El Paso then. And then of course there was last year when he was coming back from injury, he was at San Antonio and I had no confirmation on this, but the word was he might, maybe not, but might come to AAA for a couple of games and then he was suspended. So, uh, He's never made it to El Paso.
1: Okay, so AJ, and we do have some front office people that will listen to this podcast on occasion. So AJ, if you pick this one up, come on. Give him a week in El Paso. The fans <laughs> need to see uh, Tatis. Tim Haggerty needs to be rewarded from all this dangling the carrot in front of him with Tatis. <laughs> um, did Did you see maybe uptick in, in, in uh, an attendance when a guy like, say, Robinson Cano did show up?
0: Yeah, I think there are select names that definitely can sell some tickets. I remember um, Evan Longoria played on a weeknight in El Paso and they felt, you know, a couple hundred more people came. Um, So I think it definitely can help, you know, especially a national name like Tatis. People in El Paso, they love the fact that we have AAA baseball here. And I think that's really cool. This isn't a place like Nashville or Las Vegas where they also have an NHL team and they also have an NFL team. When you get a major league all star, like you know, people are saying Robinson Cano plays for the Chihuahuas. They loved that that such an established guy is wearing El Paso on his jersey.
2: Okay, so Tim, to put a bow on uh, on this on our first half talking about El Paso baseball, can you just tell us what is it about what's special about El Paso, about Southwest University Park, about the environment there? What makes it a special place for baseball?
0: I think the fans is number one. It's a stunning, beautiful stadium. It's still, I think, the best stadium I've seen in the minor leagues. I remember years ago, we had Mike D., the Padres president at the time. And when speaking at a luncheon, he didn't say it's one of the best ballparks I've seen in minor league baseball. He said it's one of the best stadiums I've seen in the country. And I thought that was really cool uh, to kind of compare it to some bigger places and bigger cities. But the people that are in it make it that much more fun. I remember the first ever Chihuahuas home game, April 28th, 2014. They begin chanting, we want to hit, we want to hit. And I'm looking around, and there's no digital screen cueing them to do that. Apparently, I learned that night, it was a tradition dating back to the oldest stadium here Dudley Field. People's grandparents did it, their parents did it, and now their kids are doing it. It's really cool. So I think that even before the Chihuahuas, there's a great tradition of baseball passion here. Uh, I had a chance to go on MLB Network to talk about my book recently, which was so much fun, and... Uh, one of the hosts was someone you guys have listened to many times, Matt Veskirgin. Yeah, And in the 90s, he did A El Paso games here. And he said the same thing, talked about the fans here. I've heard visiting players say this is their favorite place to go because there's such an atmosphere here. Yeah. You go to El Paso on even a Tuesday and it's lively. Uh, so I think it's a great combination of an awesome stadium and enthusiastic fans.
1: What about the food there? So I'm a foodie I, I'm in food service for my career. Um, What are some of the fun, interesting things that you guys have other than the dog? Everyone has a dog bowl of nachos.
0: Well, that was going to be my first answer, but you already know about the dog bowl. (laughs) Yeah, they do a great job with the variety of food at the stadium. There's some local vendors. There's a PSC, a great catering company that does a real variety. So, um, gosh, I'm, I'm trying to thank you as a foodie. I'm trying to live up to that. Phrase I am not a foodie, admittedly. I Is there
1: any green yeah. chili hot dogs and well, and while other stadiums have the helmet, uh, kind of nachos, you guys put it in a dog bowl. That's it right there. Roy's,
0: yeah, Roy's I'm, got, got home. one. <laughs> People love the dog bowl and, um, great food. I, I saw some blog had it as one of the best food options in minor league baseball when you look at uh, everything from. Even the quality of the more traditional food, like the burgers and the pizza, but right down to the variety they have. There's a lot of different stands, everything from barbecue to Mexican food. So I think people have a a real variety here.
2: Have you tried the fried chapulines?
0: No, um, I'll be completely honest. What is that?
2: Well, they're grasshoppers. They're little grasshoppers that have been (laughs) that have been fried and then they're coated in like they're coated in some kind of a little yeah, some kind of chili spice. They're actually pretty good. They're crunchy, almost like, kind of like popcorn or some something in that in that area. You just need to forget what it is you're eating and pop them in your mouth and crunch them. The Mariners' ballpark is known for their grasshopper sales, too, right? Oh, I wouldn't know. I need to get back up there. It's yeah, been, I heard they have that at their concession stands. Nice. <laughs> All right, well, let's get onto your book. So, your book is called "Tales from the Dugout: A Thousand and One Humorous, Inspirational, and Wild anecdote. Anecdotes from minor league baseball um as you noted it will be released at the end of march but there's preview of it up on amazon uh where it's available for pre-order um tell us how is it formatted are there really a thousand and one anecdotes contained in this book
0: yes one thousand one stories each of them has a catchy headline at the top and most are only a couple of sentences long and it's a very visual book as well there's more than 80 cartoonish illustrations that go along with stories and it's laid out in a really cool way that's what I wanted, was a visual book, something you can just pick up, read a few pages at a time, be entertained, and put it down for next time. And the publisher, Cider Mill, Cider Mill Press, that's what they're known for, is their visual books. Uh, so it's not something that's strictly text. And I this part has nothing to do with me, so I'll brag about it, but I think it looks great. I think the layout is perfect. Um, I know most of the people are listening and not watching, but there's I just open a random page, and there's an umpire dumping a sack full of pennies or I should say a manager dumping a sack full of pennies <laughs> at an umpire's foot on the field to pay his ejection fine so yeah it's really entertaining as I'm flipping through here here's a picture of Rue Boisdell with a beer and a keg in right field in 1911 he brought a beer with him into right field on the last day of the season
2: so how did the uh, how did the cartoons come about uh, who was the animator for that
0: It's a guy I've never met named Ben Sampson. He's in Virginia, and this is what he does for his job. Um, That's what I've learned is when you partner with a publishing company, I'm really only part of it. I had nothing to do with the title, with the design. Um, Obviously, it was my idea, and I supplied all the text, but there's editors. And I think in the end, that's what makes it look so good, is that you have 10 different people that have worked in book publishing working on it.
1: (laughs) They know Um, what they're doing, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. They know what they're doing. And And the publishing company is owned by HarperCollins. So with that comes some great distribution. It'll be in stores around the country, which is really exciting.
2: So you'll be able to go into like a Barnes and Noble or something like that and see your book sitting there on the shelf.
0: Yes. Yeah. I look forward to doing that exact thing. That's got to be a personal
2: thrill to do that.
0: It is. When my first book came out in 2012, my mother, who lives in Massachusetts, would go to the bookstores around Boston and she'd take it. And she wouldn't buy it, but she'd put it face out on the rack and kind of look around and make sure the employees weren't watching and said, I don't want to really advertise this. So she'd like put it. So the cover was facing customers.
2: <laughs> uh, man, That's a proud display. This
1: is yes. my son's book. <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic. And we're going to get we're going to get into you being from Massachusetts later on in the podcast. Um so so show us, tell us some great stories from here. Uh, we got one that Billy Butler shared a story about a snake in the forward. How did you end up having him right for this?
0: The first team I broadcast for was the 2004 Idaho Falls Chuckers, a rookie league team, and Billy Butler was on that team. He was the big prospect. Billy met his girlfriend and now wife in Idaho, and they live in Idaho. They've become really attached to that team. So because of that, I've occasionally been in touch with him we've occasionally taped interviews over the years and he's a really nice guy he's treated me really well and after one of those interviews he just said well let me know if you ever need anything and you got to be careful asking (laughs) offering that because sometimes people take you up on it Um, so I sent him a message you know with what we were looking to do get a former all-star like him to maybe share a funny story that he had from the minor leagues and make that the books forward and he did he did a great job it was actually a game that I covered 2004 billy was playing third base for idaho falls in casper wyoming and he puts his hands in the air and i can still picture the players all walking around the grass near third base the umpire walks over i have no idea why this game is being delayed there was a huge wyoming snake on the field (laughs) so the the general manager of the casper rockies had to run out with a pillowcase somehow get this big snake in there and ran off the field and the game continued that's the difference between a major league GM and a minor league GM.
1: Right.
0: <laughs> you know, AJ Preller is making trades. When you're the GM of a rookie ball team, you're picking up snakes.
1: You're pulling tarps, you're working right. in the uh, <laughs> concession. I I want to know why he had a pillowcase
2: in the first place. Like, was he prepared? Like, are snakes just a, a he obviously has done this before if he knew how to how to handle the snake and get into the pillowcase?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. It looked like a pillowcase. Maybe it was some kind of sack. Um you know, all these years I never thought about that. How was he so prepared for that?
1: Because <laughs> it wasn't like a trash bag. Well, as a I, general manager, you need to be prepared for everything. Yeah,
0: yeah. When you live in Wyoming, it's a wild place. You have well, to be it, ready.
1: And you couldn't do that, say here in you know in in California or even in Texas. Like you might run into a rattler. You might run into something. You might run into some trouble there. It it might have been a rattlesnake for all we know.
0: <laughs> I know that's a good point. What would they have done if like nobody wanted to pick up this snake? I guess you call animal control.
2: Call in animal to... control or something,
0: yeah. yeah. A longer delay.
2: We've seen that here with bees, where they get yeah. bees that'll swarm, and they'll 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 congregate in one area. They'll have to call in special, professional. It winds up being a delay of like an hour. It sounds like this game was delayed for, what, maybe 15, 20 minutes to get Just the guy down a couple down minutes,
0: in. yeah, probably even 10 minutes. Um, but Billy, in that forward for the book, he, he tells it in such a great way because... You know, he's in rookie ball. Weeks earlier he was in high school in Jacksonville. So imagine what he's thinking. Like, I've been drafted. I'm in what to him is a very random place, Wyoming, and there's a snake right. in front of me. He must be thinking, This is professional <laughs>
1: baseball? <You know? laughs> well, and your book is so is, what
2: was your Go
1: ahead. Go ahead. Well, in your book is full of stories like this. Um, where did you gather some of these stories? Did you reach out? I mean, obviously, you've witnessed some of these stories. Uh, where did you get some of the more outrageous stories from?
0: There are a lot of sources. There were Spalding and Reach Guides, a publication done once a year from the late 1800s to the early 1900s. And these were a gold mine. It's pretty much a collection of baseball events that happened that year, major leagues and minor leagues. Some are available online. The ones who weren't were at the Baseball Hall of Fame Library. So a couple of years ago, I flew to Cooperstown, had a research trip there. Uh, They have a great staff there that appreciates projects like this, and they're very helpful. So, uh, yeah, went to the Baseball Hall of Fame, grabbed many there. Um, Baseball Digest has its archives online as well, and that goes back to the 1940s. There's some great stories in there. My uncle, Al Arigi is a Sabre member. He's retired. He lives in Maryland, uh, and he was helpful to me. He would go through baseball books Mostly. And, you know, when a guy's biography tells a crazy story of when it took place in the minor leagues, he would forward me some great stuff. So I recognize him in the front of the book. Um, And also just conversations with players, with scouts that are hanging around press boxes, oftentimes they're former players. And you hear them say something. I I once heard something from uh, a double A player in the 70s that to me is one of my favorite stories in the book, maybe the favorite. He told me about the fly ball that disappeared. Have you guys ever heard about this game? No. In can say that I have. It's crazy. Double-A Bristol is at Jersey City, New Jersey. And there were some big names in this game. Uh, Wade Boggs is playing for Bristol. Ricky Henderson is playing for Jersey City. And on a clear night, a fly ball was hit to right field early in the game, and it disappeared. It vanished. It did not go over the fence. It did not land in the stands. It did not land on the field. And I talked to players who were on the field. I talked to, or I guess heard from via message, from a fan who was at this game. And they all described it the same way. Everyone's kind of looking at each other like, what just happened? So the umpires get together. Understandably, there's no rule in place for what happens when a ball vanishes. And they gave the batter a double. So... What? (laughs) That's just the type of thing that I love hearing former players telling crazy things that happened in the minors. And that's right near the top of the list.
1: There's some alien well, so spacecraft to... or some wormhole in another dimension where there's a minor league baseball just sitting there like one "There, How do I end up here?
2: <laughs> so this must not have been a ball that was hit like crazy hard where everybody's thinking that there's no doubt it cleared the fence. This must Correct. have been just yeah, like an ordinary I lazy it... fly ball.
0: I heard it described as a high fly ball. It was hit by a right-handed hitter to right field. And there was just, Disbelief among people on the field and in the stands. It was kind of like a what just happens? Um, but believe me, I'm as fascinated as you guys to what happened. <laughs> uh what did a bird somehow seize it in the air? One person suggested that maybe David Copperfield, the magician, had something to do with it because he apparently was from near
2: there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like see, this? this is like an episode of Unsolved Mysteries <laughs> or something right here. <laughs> <laughs> So what was your inspiration in putting this book together? What what was it that said, I need to start a project and just gather a thousand stories and put them in a book?
0: It was that so many of them, I don't think have been told. Hmm. I think like, like all of us know that Rodney McRae ran through the right field fence in Portland, Oregon in 1991. Like most baseball fans have seen that crazy story. And that is in the book. But I found that like the disappearing fly ball we just talked about, or um, how the Syracuse stars on opening day in 1885 didn't have uniforms yet. So they took the field in dress suits.
2: <laughs> I just felt
0: <laughs> like people have never heard these stories. So to me, that was the motivation. I, I would just get so excited when I found a new one. Okay, and not well, all of them are from back in the day. There's some some modern ones as well. Like I'll talk about why the Albuquerque isotopes have the Simpson statues in their ballpark or the Nashville sounds of a big guitar-shaped scoreboard. So that was our hope, was it really would appeal to both people that like history and the modern game also.
1: Now, I've listened to you uh, interviewed on a couple podcasts talking about the book, and I was hoping you would share the story. There was a – what was the story where the, the pitcher got stuck in the bathroom and literally, like, it took hours to get him out, something like that? How yes.
0: Double-A Mobile was at Montgomery, and I was broadcasting this game in 2007. And there was a pitcher, Matt Elliott, who allowed a game-tying home run. After that inning ends, he went into the dugout bathroom and was so upset that he slammed the dugout bathroom door. And he slammed it so fiercely that it broke the lock. And he locked himself in the bathroom and had to leave the game. So it's so strange. The next inning, Mobile takes the field with no pitcher. And there's nobody warming up. The manager, Brett Butler, was on the field scratching his head, literally. What am I going to do? And Elliot was in there until 40 minutes after the game ended. The Montgomery, Alabama fire department had to let him out.
1: (laughs) Uh,
2: So how many of your own experiences did you share in this book? Only
0: about 20 out of the 1,001 or games that I was at live, but uh, it does include that
2: bathroom delay. Uh. That's one of them. Okay, so this is the second book you published. Uh, You already mentioned Root for the Home Team, minor league baseball's most off-the-wall team names and the stories behind them. Uh, How different was the process of putting this book together compared to your first time around?
0: One difference was with that book, also published by Cider Mill Press, so also is very visual. Almost every team has either a team picture or a logo next to it, and I was gathering those. So I was going through trying to find old team pictures or contacting current teams to get their logo. Whereas this one, it was an artist doing it. So I focused really only on the writing. Um, I think in both cases, they took a long time. Traditional writers who do it for a job, they will put together a book proposal, get a publishing deal, and then start working on the book. But for me, I have a full-time job. The baseball season's busy. My wife and I have a young son. I couldn't really be handed something and say, you have to finish this book in one year. So both of them were really fun in that regard, where I was really working at my own pace. Uh, I was working on this new book for 10 years, but it wasn't as if every day I was staying up late for those 10 years. It was more of something, okay, my son's taking a nap on a weekend in November. I'm going to spend two hours trying to find crazy stuff that happened in 1908. And over time, these stories pile up and you think, wow, already I have 500, 600, 700. So I had about 1,100 stories for this new book. And I wasn't sure how I wanted to put it all together. And one day I walked by my wife's cookbook and on the spine of the book, it said, 1,001 recipes. And I thought that's the number. I like that 1,001.
2: So by then you'd already collected more than 1,001. At that point, was it just a matter of, of pairing it down to that magic number and putting a bow on it?
0: Exactly. And part of the pairing was merging similar stories. Um, There was an umpire in the early 1900s who got arrested for using foul language at the ballpark. Not ejected, arrested. (laughs) And then there was a player in the 1930s who was arrested for using foul language during a game. So that became one story. As I was trimming it down from 1100 to 1001, I didn't want any of the stories to be too similar.
2: Did you try to randomize things as far as like historical versus modern?
0: Yes. So what we did was broke it up into chapters um i'm holding it now so there's teams and ballparks batters and runners pitchers and fielders managers and executives umpires and leagues fans and tickets nature and wildlife and then for the most random the best of the rest so that's how i sorted it and then within there put it chronologically so yeah as you flip through you're getting a good good mix of old and new
2: i think i'd enjoy the nature and wildlife chapter the best i I always love those weird things where there's an animal involved, like here in, in San Diego at, at Jack Murphy stadium, there was a skunk that was resident in the stadium somewhere. Yeah. And it's like every few years, the skunk would make its way out on the field. And then all kinds of chaos would erupt until they, yeah. could, until they could usher the thing away. And I don't think they ever really caught it.
0: So you'll like this one in the 1920s. Speaking of wildlife, a game was delayed by a whale. It was in Wilmington, North Carolina. They had this nearby the beach stadium. And there was a beached whale, and this man came running into the stadium, yelling to everybody about the beached whale. So the fans all left, walked down the street to go see it. The players have to get a look, so they left and went to see it. And it left the umpire standing by himself on the field as everyone else left the ballpark for this beached whale.
1: Did the oh, umpire? Man. Why did the umpire want to go? I would have went. I'm the umpire.
2: That's true. Yeah, and <clears> every <clears throat> the umpire the has a now. job to do. <laughs>
1: Right, he doesn't get paid if he leaves the field. Like you got to be on the field to get paid. Right. Are, there, are there any legends like the, you know? There's the legend that comes right up top of my head was uh, whoever hit the farthest home run, and it was Ted Williams at Lane Field, where he had a home run over the fence, and it hit, it landed on a train that was up, you know, was found up in L.A. Any legends that can't be confirmed, but yet can't be denied?
0: I love this topic because there were a couple of times that it really took a lot of thinking to how I'm going to handle these situations. There was a late 1800s player who made it to the majors named Perry Warden and Warden claimed that in a minor league game, he hit a ball and it split in two pieces. And back then they were using just one or two or three balls a game. So that part was reasonable. The part that made me wonder was he says half of the ball flew in the air and hit the outfield fence where it said, hit me to win a free pair of shoes. And Warden claims he shows up to the shoe store the next day. And the shoe owner says, I'm giving you one shoe. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm sitting there thinking this story is so good, but is that believable? Right. Could half of a ball travel 300 feet? So in the end, what I did was I put it in the book, but I said, Perry Warden claimed. Right. So I'm not saying 100% it happened. I'm saying he (laughs) says it happened.
1: Well, Those were rare, but there stuff. was,
0: yeah, there was once or twice. There's only a couple that I put in that category, but there's a couple that I put reportedly, and I think right. that that clears me.
2: A lot of the anecdotes from back, you know, before before video, at least before photographic evidence. These are just anecdotes. These are stories that were passed by by word of mouth. Um, you know, Some of them, are, I'm sure, have become a little bit more legendary by the time they finally got written down somewhere and then put on a bookshelf for decades until you finally uncovered it.
0: You're 100% right. When I mentioned the Baseball Digest archives earlier, Baseball Digest back in the day, that's what they would do. They'd talk to a player and he'd say, there was this time in Utica back in 1945, and he'd tell this great story. But that's before the internet. So they'd just print it. So now I look at these stories that they told and the spirit of the story is true, but he said it took place in Utica in 1945. And I'd say, well, actually you were playing in Birmingham in 1945. Utica (laughs) was the next year and it was against this pitcher in Albany. Well, actually, no, that guy wasn't in Albany that year. (laughs) So there were times where I'd have to clean that up, where I would use the story, but I would say instead of 1945, I'd say in the mid 1940s.
1: See, you know, allegedly, or the legend says, and that's part of the 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 fun thing about baseball that the legends that come along, the stories, the um, you know, the stuff that you don't see on the field that you hear later on, and that's one of the things I love about baseball. And this is why I love this book, and I'm going to buy it, um, p- probably the paperback and well, you know, the hardcover and and the audio, um, to have those stories because I love the funky stories that aren't a part of the game. You know, you don't get this in football. You don't get this in hockey. You don't get this in other sports. You get these crazy stories that, you know, may be true, may not be true, but the legend is there that creates a mystique that I think is the sport of baseball. And it makes such a fun picture in your head too. Yeah.
0: Thank you. I agree. If you think about it, out of all the genres of sports in the United States, the one that has had the most total games is minor league baseball, even more than the major leagues, because Every city, big and small, sometime has had professional baseball at some level. So with that many games piled up, I knew there'd be enough chaos and humor (laughs) to fill up 1,001 stories. So I agree with you. I think that's part of why there are so many stories attached to baseball, maybe more so than other sports, is the total amount of games.
2: Yeah. So when I heard that you were coming out with this book, it didn't strike me as a big surprise because – I see, I follow you on Twitter. I see your writings come across every once in a while. You'll post, you'll put a Twitter post up about a particular event that happened. But more importantly, you'll, you've written several articles for the Society of American Baseball Writers. Um, You mentioned that your uncle was a member of Sabre. How long have you been a member of Sabre? How did you get involved with that?
0: I've loved baseball history since I was 12 when I saw the Ken Burns baseball documentary. As far as contributing to Sabre, I think that started in 2015 They're a great organization. I think a lot of people think about Sabre and they think Sabre metrics. They think that this is a group of people that are really into the analytics. And there are a percentage of Sabre members that that is their focus. But there's also a bunch that are just so into the history and the accuracy of the history of the game. To me, when I think about Sabre, I think about, let's say there's uh, somebody that spends years researching and puts out history of baseball in Arkansas. Like those books are so valuable. that they exist, that so many different people can then later use that. And that's typically a Sabre member that will just put in time and do something like that. And they probably make less than $1,000 on it, but they just really believe it's important to preserve this history. So to me, that's Sabre. Um, Sabre has a committee, the Biographical Research Committee, and their focus is the biographical information of major leaguers, and obviously, they're focusing mostly on guys that are long dead, but there's still about 150 players with unknown death dates. And people might say, well, that's an interesting thing to explore. But to me, it's awesome because they're still finding discoveries. Yeah. So if you go to like a baseball reference page in February, it says death, either blank or unknown. But like the next year, it says death and it has it in there. They they figured it out. They yeah. found this missing player. To me, that's what I love about sabers: people just pursuing the history of the game, and they're discovering new things.
2: So oftentimes, I'll want to find out something about a player in the past. I'll Google their name. Wikipedia is always the first thing that comes up. and There's a certain amount of information you'll find in there. Uh, Baseball Reference has a pretty good uh, set of biographical articles for a lot of historical players. But when I pull up the Sabre page, when there's a Sabre page available for somebody, it goes into so much detail. Um, So they call those bio project biographies. Uh, And then there's also what they call games project stories. Uh, You've written several of both of those. How do those come about? Are they assigned to you or do you come up with the idea and submit that?
0: I come up with the idea. There are certain players that aren't available because there already is a Sabre bio on them. Likewise, for the games project, Sabre is a nonprofit, so I'm not paid for those. It's more of a hobby, but I'll give you an example. There's one of them on there, Blondie Purcell. Blondie Purcell played from 1879 to 1890-ish, off the top of my head. He was the first manager in Philly's history, had 1,200 hits in the majors, and he's been missing since 1911. This is a pretty accomplished guy, and nobody knows what happened to him. He became a bookie after his career in New Jersey, and he vanished. Like, I don't know about you guys, but when I hear that, I'm just like, I want to know everything about this guy. Tell me more. This is
2: like, this is like Jimmy Hoffa. Jimmy Hoffa just went. Yeah, exactly. Said, you know, he's a bookie. So maybe he uh, he was owed a debt to somebody. or right. <laughs> Maybe yeah, he under- ended up buried somewhere something.
1: in Jersey. Oh, you know, funny for me, uh, I, I've been sober 20, 21 years. And, and one of my meetings I used to go to, they had the uh, the tape. You, you have re- uh, speaker tapes. And there's a speaker in there, and I can't remember the name, and I don't know where the CD is, but it was um, Alcoholic Number 100. So, after they didn't start publishing the book of Alcoholics Anonymous until after they had several people sober for a lengthy amount of time. And the 100th, you know, they claimed that 100th alcoholic was a former baseball player, and um, he had gotten sober. And i I gotta find this. I got I gotta do the research to find this. But he tells a story where he you know they would he'd you know they'd show up in one city. He'd get drunk, wake up the next day, and the team's already in the next city. And he has to you know he has to get on a a, a train to go to the field, and just this long story of this professional baseball player who is immortalized being the 100th alcoholic uh, you know not um, wow. sober from Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so we got. We got a little bit of time and we really appreciate you taking the time. I've been having you since 2019 to come on the podcast. When I think back when our first winter meetings, you were coming out of the yes. Hilton and I was going towards the Hilton. and I'm like, Tim Haggerty, Donovan Jones, Fires and Farm podcast and you're like, you know, almost reaching for pepper spray. Cause I was just like so happy to see you and recognize <laughs> you. And you're like, who is this guy? I don't know what what's going on. Um, You got to come on the podcast. And You're like, yeah, sure. No problem. And I think he's even handing you your card. And then it never materialized, and you know, then just life goes on and time scheduling goes by. conflicts and all that stuff. Yeah. Um. What we we have a little lightning round, but first, real quick about about your family and yours. You have a seven year old son, so you have a pretty cool job, like you know, broadcasting professional baseball, where you see your fair share amount, uh, fair share amount of, you know, former major leaguers, kind of big league guys. Uh, does your son think you're cool? <laughs> Um, does he hound you for is... autographs or...
0: <laughs> does he think I'm cool um, the other day he told me daddy you're so embarrassing so I don't think he does currently but there was one time we were at an uh, El Paso Rhinos it's a minor league hockey team here yeah. and somebody in the control room saw me on the camera in the stands and somebody I don't know knew who I was and between periods they said hey let's hear it for the Chihuahuas broadcaster Tim Haggerty who's here gave a wave uh, which was very really nice. And that was the one time that my son,
1: <laughs> I think, kind of
0: recognized people know who he is based on his job. Uh, he thought that was pretty cool. So maybe deep down he thinks I'm okay.
1: Right, because that's a cool job you have. I mean, you're kind of a big deal in El Paso. I would think you're a big deal. Um, yeah, but he's seven years old. What does he know? Right, but you're like, uh-huh, Dad's kind of cool. to you see that? That was kind of cool. All right. We, so we got a quick lightning round for you, um, and we'll get you out of here. Once again, we really appreciate you taking the time. Sure. So, <clears throat> most entertaining player, coach, you've covered.
0: Um, I was around him for a long time, Cody Decker. Cody was with us in 12 and 13 in Tucson, was with us at 14 and 15 in El Paso. And he was a great gift for a broadcaster because if the team's in a losing streak or if there's a, a day game and you're pressed for time, like when you need someone to tape a three-minute interview – You could just get him even if you got him the week before and you have no idea what he's going to talk about. You know, I'd have a couple of baseball questions ready. And by the end of it, he's telling me about Nicholas cage or Columbia or, um, (laughs) he was just so comfortable going a million different directions on the air. And now is a very good talk show host on Fox sports.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We love anti-hero. And right when we started the podcast was when it was like one of his last years in El Paso. Um, I know you're married. I know you have a family celebrity crush. Um, you would decline that just in case the wife doesn't want to hear that. That, That's about as racy as it gets.
0: I can remember. I wasn't even a huge like country music fan, but I can remember as like a, probably like late high school, maybe early college, I saw a Dixie Chicks movie music video. Okay. And the uh, Emily, I think she plays the guitar. I remember thinking, wow, who's that?
1: Right. <laughs> good safe answer you're gonna get not gonna get in trouble guilty pleasure uh either it's a band or if it's a tv show or if it's a food
0: i love 90s rock music i'm really into pearl jam nirvana Soundgarden. there's a new band the pretty reckless a current band and i think that's why i like them so much as they remind me of the 90s pretty reckless uh female singer great angry rock voice um
1: yeah. So check out the Screaming Females, and I've heard okay. of are pretty reckless as well. Screaming Females just came out with a new album, same thing. Three uh three musician band, um, Angry, Rock and Roll, along the same grunge hard rock line. Uh, we're both 90s guys ourselves. Um, moving on, whataburger or In and Out?
0: Oh. Well, your audience is in California. <laughs> I will probably uh anger a lot of people, but there's a Whataburger near my house. There's no In-N-Out Burger. Yeah. I don't even know if you have one in the whole city. Probably not. <laughs> so I eat at Whataburger more often. <laughs> I'm sure if I of- I'm sure if I lived in like Carlsbad or something, right. I'd pick In-N-Out, but
1: you know, we we ask a lot of minor league guys cuz they do, you know, they come from other parts of the country, but in spring training, there's the In-N-Out Burger right, right next to Peoria.
0: Right near Peoria, yep. I've eaten okay. at that one.
1: If you could have a pet that isn't a dog or a cat, what would it be? Um Maybe like a really big
0: bird. I've always liked seeing boards soar. If I could somehow take care of a hawk and not have my health be in jeopardy, maybe that'd be a cool animal.
2: <laughs> I've always been fascinated by birds of prey. Anytime
1: there's one up in the air, I'm staring at it. I love I those things. Yeah. Can you name the most famous alumni from Leiden State University, your alma mater in Vermont?
0: Yes, Jim
1: Cantoria, the weatherman. Oh, it took you in a different direction, Donovan. It did. It, I, I found Ben Affleck. What? Yeah, I looked it up on Google, and um, the other one I found was uh, northern. The northern. uh you went to Northern Massachusetts University. Well, so I up-
0: yeah, I went to uh, Linden State College, but it recently changed to Northern Vermont University.
1: We're sitting. And I longer. hate,
0: I hate to correct you on your own show, Donovan, but uh, no, <laughs> Ben Affleck did not go there. No.
1: <laughs> it, it just showed that the first name, and then the other one really? didn't recognize anyone. <laughs> And the other one was uh, in that area. So I Google both. Sydney um, Lauper went to one of the universities up there uh, close. Yeah, while.
0: she went to Johnson State in Vermont, I think.
1: Uh, okay, I think yeah. yeah, that's and they're all kind of very similar. So I, I picked the biggest one.
0: Oh, Okay, okay, you might be right then because my college recently merged with a with another college and became Northern Vermont University. Maybe Ben Affleck was involved with the other one. Maybe now we're getting to it.
1: <laughs> and that's not confusing at all. Grasping for straws. Well, we think you're the most famous person from your college. Um, Thank you. You grew up in a suburb of Boston, but you don't have an accent. Uh, Convince us that you're from Massachusetts.
0: My family all does. Very strong accents, but that wouldn't have gone well in the broadcasting business. So that took a lot of work in college and then a couple years after to get rid of that. But yeah, like when my parents come, people must think I'm adopted (laughs) or something. When they start talking about, yeah, Southwest University Park downtown, um, they have very thick accents.
2: Do you ever have a, do you ever have a word slip out on you every once in a while?
0: My wife says that I say hurry funny, but, um, he hurried to get it. I don't know. What did you guys think? Does that sound weird? She said, that's the only word.
1: I I didn't think it like a wicked liner down the line or something.
0: (laughs) Right.
1: (laughs) He's worked hard to, to strip that from his habits. Yes. Um, most bizarre play you've ever had to call.
0: Um, In 2015, there was a wiener dog race on the field between innings, and one of the wiener dogs got loose and ran all over the infield, so we had a wiener dog delay in El Paso as an inning was about to begin. It was funny, just the other day I saw that video, because MLB Network wanted to involve that with my interview, and I just noticed that one of the infielders with the wiener dog running past them is Corey Seager. He was playing for Oklahoma City in El Paso that night.
2: So was this like coming back from a commercial break when all this chaos was breaking out? So did you call it like it was a sports play going on?
0: Yes, exactly. Twisting and turning, avoiding infielders. (laughs) Um, Yeah, the video was on Good Morning America, but you couldn't hear my audio, but it got a lot of play. (laughs)
2: Oh, I thanks. love that because like in a football game when a cat shows up on the field and then the announcers call it, he's at the 10, he's at the five <laughs> touchdown. And then the, the crowd goes nuts
1: when the cat goes in the end zone. <laughs> well, Hey Tim, we really, really appreciate you coming on. Uh, we got to have you come on, you know, maybe not during the season when you guys are just so busy, but certainly after the season, uh, we'd love to have you come on and talk about the season. Uh, we really appreciate it. We got under a minute to go. And uh, I need to meet up with you so you can sign my book. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. No, thank you both for your kind words in the book and for thinking to invite me on. And I appreciate your passion and uh, I enjoyed it.